The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location at Chad's Ford, Chester County. In 1777, George Washington's Continental Army did battle with the British here at the Brandywine River. He ultimately lost, and the British went on to capture the Patriot capital. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Battle of Brandywine are authors Bruce Malday and Mike Harris. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Tell us a little about your background. Uh, I'm Bruce Mowdy. I've been writing all of my life, and I know where I got started with history and writing. I was about 13 years old, and my grandmother gave me newspaper clip clippings from the Civil War, and they were written by my great-great-great-grandfather. So that got me interested. I've lived in the Chester County area my whole life. I used to play on the, battle, uh, on the State Park Brandywine Battlefield as a kid. I was um, chairman of the Brandywine Battlefield Park Associates. I was also chair of the Chester County Historical Society, and I'm on the board at the moment of the Valley Forge Associates. So I've loved this area of history all my life and um, spent about 20 years in newspapers also. Mike? Okay, my name is Mike Harris, and I um, basically grew up in a military family, spent childhood not going to the beach or the mountains, but going to historic sites or battle, a lot of battlefields. And so when I was nearing the end of high school deciding what to do, I went um, and got a degree in historic preservation. Um, and then uh, got a job working in museums, worked for Pennsylvania for nine years for the state of Pennsylvania. The last four of which I was the educator here at the Brandywine Battlefield. And uh, during that time, I got my master's in military history and it sort of evolved into writing a book on the, on the Battle of Brandywine. How could we describe the city of Philadelphia in the 18th century? I think it's probably the most important city, of course, in the country is the capital city. Um, I think it was probably had, it's not the most population it was second anyway. And it was very important to the United States and the fledgling, fledgling country. Yeah, Cosmopol cosmopolitan mixture, you know, Scotch, Irish, Quakers, um, Anglicans, um, but second largest city in the British Empire behind London. It was largest city in North America. So it, you know, it meant a lot for the British to come try to capture it. Like any big city, I'm sure there's a spectrum of political beliefs. Could we say the city was very pro-patriot or pro-loyalist one way or the other? I think it was, you know, kind of split. You, you hear different theories, whether there was a third would really like to have freedom, another third would like to stay loyal to the king, and the other third would like to, you know, just be left alone. Um, I think there was a mixture, and, and it took a long time, I think, for a lot of people to really kind of commit to fight for independence. Yeah, I would agree with that. If anything, it leaned loyalist to the city. Um, plus, there was a heavy Quaker population that didn't want to get involved. Um, Pennsylvania's patriot population really was in the backcountry or the counties outside the city. It really, the city itself probably leaned Loyalist, if I had to put a number on it, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't know exact yeah, numbers either, exact but numbers. I, I, you know, you can't argue with that. I think that's accurate. Was it a heavily defended city? You mean by fortifications or troops or both? Both. No, both accounts. Um, uh, basically, there were no, there was some militia, but there was no continent, at least up until 
late August of 1777, there's no Continental Line troops to defend Philadelphia. They're all in North Jersey or moving in this direction. In terms of fortifications, the fortifications everybody talks about in terms of later in the campaign, Fort Mercer had not been built yet on the New Jersey side. And Fort Mifflin was only a wall that faced the river. It wasn't an enclosed work. It was heavily mudded, and there was not a lot of troops in it. So it wasn't formidable like it would be later in the campaign. So in terms, and, and from the land side, there was no fortifications prepared from the land side to protect the city. I think if you look in 1777, Washington had a difficult time keeping his army together, let alone fortifying different cities, even one as, as important as Philadelphia. That's a good point. Can we talk about the state of the revolution in 1777, what had transpired? Not going very well. Um, this 1776 was pretty much a disaster. Washington really didn't win many or any battles. Um, you had the Long Island very soundly defeated. Uh, the British actually late in 76 thought they could divide their forces and really bring the whole revolution to the end in 77, but Washington, of course, surprised on Christmas Eve and Trenton and, and everything kept it going. So it wasn't looking good, I guess, in that year. Yeah, I would agree. Um, they had lost a lot of territory in 1776 um, after everything looked promising towards the end of 1775. But more importantly, the army the Continental Army basically disintegrates at the end of 1776. The one-year enlistments had expired for most of the troops. And so throughout the, the winter and spring and right on through the summer, for that matter, Washington's literally having to build an army from scratch. So a lot of the guys that fight here were not even in the Army in 76. And so you not only you have all the political issues going on, you've got a military in the process of still being trained that's fighting a major battle here. 1776 is pretty dire for Washington, but by 77, the events we're talking about today, it's a very different army. Uh, what steps does he take to do that? He received authorization from Congress to, to um, raise some troops, but the big problem with Congress, they did not really you know, back up with money or supplies, so the support there was, was not what Washington needed. Yeah, I, and, and it's a time-consuming process to recruit and get mobilize those troops and get them to the army encampment. So as an example, the North Carolina Brigade that was authorized with everybody else doesn't even link up with the army till just a few weeks before the battle because they have to get up here from North Carolina. So it, it's just very time consuming, even though all these troops were authorized, getting them here and then training them. We've been talking a lot about Washington. Let's talk about the British side. Who was William Howe and what did he hope to achieve by capturing Philadelphia? Well, William Howe was the head of the, the British Army, a very experienced officer. Um, I always had the feeling he was not totally into the revolution, and, and he thought, I think as a lot of British did, that we'd all come to our senses at some point and remain loyal to, to the um, king. Um, Philadelphia was the capital city, and you know, in a lot, a lot of other wars, if you capture the capital city, you could kind of end the war. So he was a very experienced officer. Of course, his brother was head of the, the Navy here for the British. He was hoping for a quick end? Yes. Yeah, and I also, you know, there's also all this stuff about, um, you know, you can win the battles, but do you want to really destroy the other side when theoretically you're trying to bring these colonists back into the fold and make them citizens of the empire again? And so he gets criticized frequently, including here, for never following up on a victory and really, you know, putting that final blow into Washington, taking them out. You know, he gets criticized for it on Long Island. He gets criticized for it here and, and other battles too. Um, there's a lot of theory out there that, you know, he's a Whig, member of parliament, doesn't completely agree with the war, but it's hard to prove all that because his personal papers were lost. Uh, what routes are available to Howe to capture Philadelphia? There's a few. The, there, there are, and again, if we go back to the late the year before, he um, at first uh, asked for permission to split the army with Burgoyne in the north, and he would capture Philadelphia in the coming campaign after the New Year's and, and New Year's Eve and, and Washington's successes in, in New Jersey. He kind of rethought it, and he asked Lord Germain, uh, maybe we better keep all the armies together and not split them up. 
Um, the only approval he got back from Germain was his original request to split the army, and that I think really proved to be the downfall. Yeah, and, and to kind of elaborate on that, you know, during the winter prior to this campaign, John Burgoyne, who's one of the generals up in, in Canada, British generals, goes home and actually has meetings with the king and with Lord Germain to try to figure out what, what they want to do. And basically the king's point was we should continue with what we had started in 1776. The, the British plan kind of from the beginning of the war was get control of the Hudson River Lake Champlain Corridor. And the capture of New York City in 1776 was kind of the first phase of that. So they could have an army placed to start to move up the Hudson River. So, so the British had this whole plan to split New England off from the rest of the colonies, thinking that New England was the cause of all the problems. And as far as the king was concerned, that plan remained in place for 1777. Um, yet, orders technically were written, but they never got delivered to Howe. Uh, it's kind of this case of bureaucracy pigeonholing, pigeonholing the documents. And so Howe actually requested to go after Philadelphia, but he, he promised he would get back in time to aid Burgoyne in some way coming down from Canada. So when Hal decides to go on this Philly expedition, Philadelphia expedition, the king and Germain, even though you know it's weeks and weeks of communication to get back and forth, are kind of assuming Hal's going to do it quickly so that he could get back to New York City and start moving up the Hudson. But Hal at no point moves quickly to capture Philadelphia. Which, geographically speaking, which direction would he ultimately come from? Um, basically, after dilly-dallying in North Jersey for a little while, some abortive maneuvers up there, ultimately they go by sea and they use the British fleet. And after a brief, like, one-day stop in the mouth of the Delaware Bay, they go back out to sea and ultimately come up the Chesapeake Bay, Bay and land um, on the Elk River in northeastern Maryland. Could we talk a little bit about the river that's behind us now? Uh, what is the Brandywine River and how was it used before the battle? Brandywine was known as the River of Mills. There was a lot of grain mills and, and that type of little mills at the time was pretty important for the, the business side of Chester County. As you see it now, um, it was probably a little bit deeper than what you'll see now, uh, but it was pretty much unchanged. It was followed pretty much the same path. There was a little damming, but not much. Yeah, um, you don't realize it today, but it, it was a natural barrier. So if you're in Washington trying to get your army in position to stop access to Philadelphia and, and the enemy's coming from the south, the, you know, the Brandywine at the time was a little bit deeper. Um, you know, the fords, you know, there's British accounts that the fords were chest deep. So, you know, it's a, it was a natural barrier. And if you don't defend the Brandywine, the next thing is the Schuylkill, and the Schuylkill butts right up against the Philadelphia, up against Philadelphia. So they had to make a stand here. This was not an unplanned battle. George Washington in the, the days before the battle was looking for a place for defense and he specifically picked this section because he really wanted Hal to kind of charge across or try to, to ford in front of his army and they had really good defenses on the other side. As Hal's approaching, uh, where is Washington's army? Um, depends on what point of the campaign. Um, for a while they're in North Jersey or, or on the lower Hudson thinking that they're going to use the fleet to go up the Hudson River. Um, and it's, it's going to take a while because there's no real Continental Navy to be able to follow the British fleet around. So they're relying upon spotters dotted along the American coastline and then relays of guys on horseback to report to Washington what they're seeing. So it takes a while for them to figure out what's going on. And then ultimately they're going to move down out of North Jersey, cross the Delaware River up where New Hope is today. Um, that's going to take place mid-August. Um, August 25th they march through Philadelphia, which is the same day the British fleet lands um, in northeastern Maryland. Um, they march down to northern Delaware. There's some skirmishing down there through early September. And then both armies kind of parallel each other up across the Delaware state line to get in this vicinity. The uh, British really had three options or a lot of the Americans officers and if you read some of the, the reports from George Washington and his officers they, they really didn't know if Howe was going to go north to Burgoyne, attack Philadelphia or even go further south down to Charleston and, and that area um, and they were just kind of going up and down and as 
Mike said, they marched through Philadelphia and ended up in the Wilmington area. And uh, the first skirmish was really around Cooch's Bridge and then was followed up by Brandywine. Bruce, you were very clear this was not an accidental battle. We would call it a meeting engagement. Washington had a plan here. Could you talk about his strategy? Yes, he, he as Michael said, he picked this. This was the best defense for Philadelphia. He gathered his troops. Um, he did some exploration of the, the river and where to fortify. He actually got some um, locals to give him some intelligence and they did not give him very good information and left the whole right flank kind of affordable as what happened later. Um, I always thought that really that information that he received before the battle really kind of doomed Washington and allowed the uh, flanking movement that Hal eventually did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't really add much to that. Um, Bruce did a pretty good job of answering that one. Basically, he just poorly informed about the upper forts. He defended the forts he knew about, or at least kept, at least kept an eye on them, but there was ones even farther up to the north that there was no Americans watching their crossing point. Also, the, the British, um, they had some loyalists giving them information. Frankly, they were better informed than the uh, patriots that were informing Washington. You both mentioned a very important word here, and that's a ford. Uh, how would a, an 18th century general look at this river differently than, of course, today we would? A uh, modern person should look at a ford like a bridge. It's a way to get across an impassable body of water. Um, basically, they were low points in, in the river. Sometimes they had a stony bottom. And then the locals, farmers, etc., merchants, would cut roads to the fords. And so it was the, a crossing point for anybody in the 18th century, not just an army. So all these fords have been developed by all the farmers and the merchants in the area. And then the armies are going to use them. Uh, by today's standards, most of us moderns wouldn't be afraid of crossing this river. Uh, what were some of the big problems that could arise if an army crossed too deep, for example? Well, you know, their ammunition, it's not, don't think of modern ammunition. It's not, you know, steel jacketed. So their ammunition's basically gunpowder wrapped in paper. And so if that gets wet, their ammunition won't work. And so if you cross at a spot too deep or you can't at least hold your ammunition above your head while you cross, then you can't fight a battle. Um, you know, your supply wagons are gonna, if they sink too deep in the, in the water, all your food, extra ammunition is also gonna get wet. So you gotta cross at a low enough point where you can protect your supplies. If you, if you went across a point that was too high, of course, and if you get attacked from the other side, mm -hmm. you can't move that quickly. So you're almost sitting ducks yeah, out there also. Point. Yeah, that's a really good point. This leads us to the importance of Chad's Ford. Can we talk about why that was so valuable? The British came up from from the south, and, and the night before they were in Kennett Square. Um, I think this was the main route really into Philadelphia. It was through this area, and uh, I think Washington recognized that Howe was going to take this route to get to Philadelphia. Yeah, Washington basically, like he does throughout the world, war, is he fails to think outside the box. He just assumes Howe's going to come right at him up the main up the main road as Bruce said oh Hal's not going to do that how this in fact this battle is the sixth time Hal outflanks Washington it's not the first time he did this and and Washington still sets him up himself up for that flank movement by basically placing almost all of his roughly 16,000 troops within a mile of Chad's Ford and not spread out at all the other fords also can we talk about the arrangements of Washington's troops just before the battle? Um, basically, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll start. And then, um, so Chad's Ford's kind of in the middle of what will become Washington's initial defensive position. Um, he's got troops stretching mile, a mile to south, actually a little bit farther than a mile, to another ford called Piles Ford. There's some new evidence that maybe even the militia was stretched as far as the Delaware State Line, which is below Piles Ford. And then, the, um, so basically from there to a mile north of where we're, we're sitting, to uh, Britain's Ford. So the main concentration, you know, basically five, six divisions of the army are stacked up watching a two, two and a half mile front. Um, they, they have other detachments farther north and on the other side of the river, but this is where the bulk of the army is trying to stop the British from coming across. 
And if you look at the placement of, of the troops themselves, you, ha you had General Sullivan on the right flank, very strong commander, very reliable. You had uh, Anthony Wayne pretty much um, defending pretty close to where we are today. And the Pennsylvania militia was a little bit more south, and Washington was not quite sure how battle ready they were. And the indications I get, Washington thought an attack was more likely here and to, the, to his right flank than the left flank. You mentioned Howell seemed to be a step ahead of Washington in this regard. Uh, what measures did he take to ensure that he fought the battle on his own terms? Well, Bruce kind of mentioned it earlier. He um, recruited some locals, um, but his locals were a lot more reliable than the ones that were uh, supposedly helping Washington. They basically explained the how where the fords are that weren't being defended, the roads that could be used to get to them, the roads that could be used once across them to get into the right rear of Washington's defensive positions. Basically, he used the locals to, to guide the way, and they're with the column, the flanking column, the day of the battle, telling them which way to go. And also, I, I think it was, Howe was just really supreme, supremely confident and his troops and that they could win. He, he's won mostly every other battle where he engaged Washington. And I thought he, you know, he really knew he was gonna have a victory. Uh, you mentioned Sullivan and Wayne. Uh, what other officers were involved in this battle? There's some pretty big names. Well, on the British side, you had Cornwallis. He was here, he's probably the big, biggest one. You had uh, Kneiphausen, the, the German Hessian general that commanded one wing uh, and was very active in the morning and keeping Washington behind the Brandywine while the flanking movement took place. You had uh, Captain Patrick Ferguson, was known for the Ferguson rifle, first used here at, at Brandywine. And you had a lot of American generals. And of course, the most important one was Lafayette. It was his first battle, even though he did not have command of troops. You know, he shed blood here. And, and I think that was one of the main important outcomes of this battle was that Lafayette showed that he was willing to fight and bleed for, for America. Yeah, um, Nathaniel Green, who will go on to uh, serve well in the Southern campaigns for the American Army. Uh, Adam Stephen, who will later be cashiered from the Army for drunkenness at Germantown, uh, which is a battle you know, just a few weeks after this. Um, but you pretty much hit the main ones. The main generals. Yeah. So there was actually yeah. a lot of other staff officers yeah. that were very important later on and people on, on Washington's staff also. Now this is a long battle. Could we talk about the earliest engagements of the battle, the early morning of September 11th? The, how started the flanking movement way before daybreak. Um, the first real fighting, I guess the, the, the shots were outside of Kennett Square near the old Anvil Inn. You can still see an anvil up there. It's the only thing left of it. And also the uh, Kennett Square Meeting House. And I forget, was it seven o'clock in the morning? Six, I have six, six. It yeah. might be six, I, I'm going from memory. It, yeah. it was in that area where really the first shots and, and most of the fight, all yeah. of, just about all of the fighting in the morning was from Kennett Square down to the... Yeah, first shots are basically where, roughly where the entrance of Longwood Gardens is today. If you're familiar with the area, based, you know, the that DuPont estate off of Route 1, roughly where their entrance road is, is where the tavern he mentioned, Welch's Tavern or Anvil Tavern, um, is where the first shots were, just outside of Kent Square. How does it progress from there? Um, basically, you have this, in the morning phase, you have a running fight on the west side of the river. Washington had dispatched about a thousand guys under William Maxwell to purposely slow down the approach of the British column. Because in Washington's eyes, remember, that's the entire British Army coming up what's today Route 1. So these guys basically set up in pockets of 50 and 100 at different ambush points, rock outcroppings, fences, rock walls, around buildings. And every time they, they fire a shot or two and then they take off running down the road. And so you have this running battle for several miles on the other side of, of the Brandywine. And ultimately, by about 9, 9.30ish, those thousand guys are now just on the other side of the river from where we are right now. And by 10 o'clock, the last of the fighting on the other side of the river happens, and those guys pull over to this side of the river, over to the east side, or the, yeah, the east side of the river. Um, and during that morning, we were talking about important people here at the battle. John Marshall, future Supreme Court mm -hmm. Justice in the United States, fought 
with uh, Maxwell's light infantry and it was really Maxwell division or infantry unit was put together just a few weeks before Brandywine. I was um, supposed to use to exactly as he did here to kind of slow down the British advance. And Marshall's father also fought with the Third Virginia and was more engaged um, after the flanking movement. Yeah, up on the northern end of the battlefield. Yep. How does the battle change as the day continues? Um, well, beginning, I forget the time, I want to say it's pretty early, about 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, the first of several what will become conflicting intelligence reports start to come into Washington's headquarters, a lot of which come through John Sullivan, whose division is watching the right flank. And um, so you have this morning fight and this diversion going on here because the whole purpose of this diversionary fight from the British point of view is to keep Washington's army in place so that there's enough time for this 17-mile flank march to take place to get behind Washington's rear. And so throughout the day, there's reports of this flanking column coming in. And Washington, I'm going to be kind and say he just misinterprets them, he doesn't do a good job at dis discerning, A, the sources of the information and what those sources are actually saying. And so he doesn't make the right decisions about whether or not, whether or not to deal with the supposed flanking column. Also, um, if you read some of his reports and some of the staff reports, Washington late in the morning he was really upset and mad and said, why can't somebody tell me where the British Army is? It was not like he was unaware that there was a possible flanking movement and he thought that Hal did. And as Mike said, the reports he was getting in, some of them were kind of nebulous on times and places and was tough to kind of piece it, piece it all together. But it wasn't like Washington was totally unaware. He just did not have the solid information to, to act properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like one, for example, one minute he would get a report from um, this guy Moses Hazen, who was a colonel watching the, the far right flank of the American army up at Buffington's Ford. And he reports that this column, this flanking column's out there on the other side of the river. Hazen, you know, a Continental Line officer, he's not a militia officer. Um, former British Army officer actually fought in the, in the French and Indian War up in Canada for the British Army. And so this is a guy that they should have been listening to. And based on that report um, and some others, Washington actually orders an assault down here at Chad's Ford. Um, because the, the theory goes, well, if this flank march is, is happening, that means that half or maybe less than half the British Army is on the other side of the river. And maybe I can attack across the river and knock out half the British Army. So they actually, some units start to actually cross over the river and begin this assault on uh, Knipphausen down here. But just as that assault's getting underway, another one of these reports comes in from a militia officer, this guy uh, Spear, Major Spear. And Spear says that he rode from uh, Marshallton, which is way up in between the two forks, the two branches of the Brandywine, all the way down the Welch's Tavern, which is again where Longwood Gardens is, and back here at the Chad's Fort, and he didn't find anybody. Now, there's a lot of issues with that report. And Washington now panics because if that report is true, he's sending his guys over to fight the whole British army. They're gonna get caught in the river. And so all this contradictory intelligence keeps changing the plans throughout the day. And so he calls off this assault here. Yeah, Washington was afraid, exactly as Mike said, and he was really afraid that it was another ploy by Howe to get him out of his defenses and Howe really didn't go that far and he was just waiting for Washington to move move across from his defensive position. Is this a reflection on Washington's capability as a commander or just the realities of 18th century intelligence gathering? I think it's more you know, a reflection on untrained army. As we said earlier, you know, the army was new. They hadn't had much of experience. And, and I think it was more that than, than anything. I think it's a little bit of both, but some of what Bruce is saying Communication is a huge issue. It takes, you know, there's no radios, there's no, there ain't even telegraphs. So to get any kind of information back and forth from long distances, I mean, we're talking about a several mile front here. It's all guys on horseback. And sometimes it's verbal and, and a verbal message can get mixed up in the, in the translation. But then, you know, some of it is, is that Washington doesn't always make the best decisions on a battlefield. Remember, he only wins twice. He only won at Trenton and Princeton by himself anyway. There's Yorktown, the French fleet's involved. You know, he lost everywhere else. So not, you know, Washington's a great man, don't get me wrong, but he's not the best battlefield general. 
just throwing it out there. <laughs> I, I agree, he didn't win very many. What he was was a supreme uh, leader that yeah. kept the Army together, and that's, that was, that's really I where his strengths are. I agree, yeah. Uh, so he's got some bad information. He makes some questionable decisions. Uh, how does he pay a price for that? Oh, man. Uh, I don't even know how to begin to answer that. But, um, well, go ahead, I'll let you start and yeah, then I'll uh, fill in. Uh, maybe just fill in. Um, there, there was one of the British officers' reports in, in his journal. I forget where I read it. But it basically said if they had another hour or two of daylight, there would not have been a George Washington's army left, that the yeah. flanking movement really worked and it ended in a rout and a, and a retreat. Yeah, and, and vice versa, another hour the other way. If the final report that um, kind of comes in to confirm everything. Um, um, a Th Theodore Bland, who's a Virginia Cavalry officer, rides up north after all these nefarious reports come in. He finally sends this guy up there to find out what's going on. And it's about 1.15 that they get a report, or at least that's when the report was written, that, hey, by the way, I, I found them and you're, they're behind your right rear and they're, you know, they're, they're lining up to, to fight. And so based on that report, they rush three divisions um, a few miles to the north to try to block this flank maneuver. Now, my point is, if they had found out an hour earlier and given time for all three of those divisions to get fully in place, it, it could have gone differently. They just didn't quite have enough time to get fully established and in place with all their artillery to stop the assault that was coming. And they get swept off the hill, and, and then it, it turns for the British where they wish they had one more hour of daylight. Yeah. Could we talk about how the battle comes to its, its head? Well, basically, it's kind of like what I'm saying. So they get this report, and so by, by 2 o'clock, that report is coming into Washington. And so he orders Adam Stephen, Lord Sterling, and John Sullivan to take their three divisions uh, on this march to the north. And I, I don't know the distance all the time, but I think it's about three miles, mm, two and a half, two and a half maybe. I'm kind of guessing off the top of my head. But they have to get from down here at Chad's Ford, basically to the northeast to Birmingham Hill, into a blocking position for the, from the British, which are a mile away on Osborne Hill. So they're another mile north, taking a break after their long march. But there's just not quite enough time to get there before they launch this assault off of Osborne's Hill. Two of the divisions pretty much do get in place. It's John Sullivan's division that's still in the middle of moving when they get hit by the assault. And so one whole division gets taken out before the battle almost even starts. Um, and then it just sort of progresses from there because it's just heavily outnumbered up there at that point. You also had, um, when that was happening, the orders for Knight-Palsen was when you hear us charging back up off of Osborne Hill to ford the Brandywine and push and they'll get him into a vice. Mm -hmm. And um, actually Wayne was in charge here, Anthony Wayne, and had him pretty well, but eventually there, there was a British division that came in on his flank and pretty well destroyed the defense and he was pushed off the Brandywine and the retreat was on from there. Now, both of you have written the book on Brandywine. Are there any parts of this battle you find particularly compelling on your end? I really always been intrigued what happened at um, Sandy Hollow. It was late in the afternoon, really the last defense uh, of the Americans with General Green up there. You, you had the British coming off of Osborne Hill, as Michael said, Sullivan um, troops really deteriorated. Um, and that's where John Marshall's father, 3rd Virginia, helped stem it a little bit. It was fought back past the Birmingham Meeting House, and Birmingham was used both as a hospital for both sides during the battle. British took control and kept pushing the Americans up to Sandy Hollow. Um, the, somebody wrote that the, one of the little streams where the river ran red with blood and, and it was contested for, for a fairly long period of time back and forth and that's where Green and some of the others really kind of stopped. It, it was also close to where Lafayette was wounded. Uh, he was wounded just across the the road from where Sandy Hollow is at the moment, but it was really a testament. I think that really helped uh, Washington to escape his army, to escape what happened at Sandy Hollow. Mike? Yeah, and then um, after um, that position on Birmingham Hill and around Sandy Hollow collapses, you basically have this pell-mell run across the farm fields by the remnants of the three divisions that fought up there, uh, retreating south down what was then the Wilmington Pike, 
um, through the village of Dilworth and the farms around Dilworth. But then ultimately Washington, you know, shows up on the scene and uh, he has rushed another division that was still down here at Chad's Ford up there, Nathaniel Green's division. They're gonna be kind of the last fresh division to get into the fight. And they're gonna form basically this U-shaped defensive line, um, roughly where modern day Oakland Road comes out on US 202. Um, it's kind of developed today, it's kind of hard to see it, but some of the ground is still there. And what's so fascinating about this, this end of the day battle is that the Americans were kind of on the south side of a ridge. And the sun's going down, it's late in the day, it's 6, 6.30, and the British think they've got it won, and they're not gonna hit any more fresh troops, and they're just go gobbling up retreating guys. And when they crest this ridge, as the sun's going down, their, their silhouettes are literally silhouetted against the, night, the, the evening sky, and they're caught getting fired on from three shot sides by Green's division, and there's, probably some of the heaviest British casualties of the battle take place at this last action of the fight, um, about 6.30 at night, when, when Green's gonna be able to hold the roads open, him and Anthony Wayne, for the army to retreat to Chester that night. The retreat is pretty important in this battle, Washington's retreat, that is. Uh, can we talk about how the Continentals got out of this very difficult situation? Part of it was because Hal didn't pursue him. Uh, they chased him a little bit down, but um, Hal was content to uh, stay on the battlefield and, and regroup the army and the pursuit was not vigorous by any stretch of the imagination as Michael said earlier that that was one of the things that Howe was criticized for was he did not do that follow-up so it was a little bit easier than what you would anticipate. Yeah there's a lot, there's a lot of factors some of which I talked about in my book that um, the, the Wayne's stubborn little fight down here at Chad's Ford, and then that fight with Nathaniel Green that I just described. You know, I think Washington, how at that point, it's dark, it's starting to get dark. He's a little hesitant, doesn't know the roads, to really go after them, not knowing what else might be out there. Plus, there's not a lot of cavalry with the British Army, and cavalry is your traditional pursuit force for gobbling up a retreating army. A lot of the British horses were lost during the long voyage to get here. And so throughout the campaign, they're trying to replenish their livestock, including their horses. And a lot of the cavalry, the, the, the five squadrons of 16th Light Dragoons that were with the British Army are dismounted. They don't even have horses. So they're, they're, they have a real inability to pursue. And he's kind of got a lackadaisical approach to really destroying Washington's army, like we've talked about. If he does pursue, hypothetically, uh, and he does capture Washington's army, is that it? Is the war over? Um, no, not quite the war over, but it would probably put the outcome, the final outcome, very much in doubt. Yeah. Um, because you, you still had Burgoyne's army, I mean, you still had army in the north that would fight Burgoyne in the next couple of weeks. Um, and it, it was very unlikely he was going to capture the whole army. I, I don't think he might have yeah. picked off units here and there, but I, I don't think the Washington's army was ever in any in danger of being kind of rounded up and totally yeah. captured. And the, the British were tired. I mean, they had, the, especially the flanking force, 17 mile march on a late summer humid day. I mean, there was accounts of guys dying from heat stroke. Um, and then they had fought a, a fairly intense battle for a few hours. They, you know, they weren't in the best of shape for pursuit. So I, I just, I don't know if it, it would have, was even possible to really take out Washington's army. And, and there, we kind of mentioned earlier, I think that just about every troop were engaged in the battle, so it wasn't like you had a fresh yeah. regiment to send after him. Yeah. What does Washington write after the battle? How does he assess the events? He blames the intelligence. His report, that night, the, that night they retreat to Chester, and that night he writes a letter to John Hancock, who's the president of Congress at the time, and he states right in the thing, I'm gonna paraphrase, I don't know if I remember the exact quote, but the, the reports of a flanking column were contradictory is basically what he says. I don't remember exactly how he worded it, but he blames the intelligence for, for losing the battle. I think in that same report, he also says, and again, it's been a while since I read it, that, he, that his troops are in good spirits, mm -hmm. but they had to leave the field to the enemy. And um, very much, it did not look like it was a big disaster. And, of course, his staff wrote it, and he just signed the, yeah. the, the report that went back. Yeah, and it's not many days later that they're ready to go again. Um, 
the British are going to stay here for five days, you know, cleaning up, licking their wounds, gathering supplies, pillaging the countryside. Washington's on the move for those five days. So that night, they're in Chester. The next morning, they march up through Darby, cross the Schuylkill River, roughly where 30th Street Station is today for Amtrak, then march out to the village, what was then a village of Germantown. They spend a, a couple days recovering in Germantown, and then it's on the 15th? I'm trying to remember. It's either September 14th or 15th. So just a few days later, they march down into Maniunk, cross the Schuylkill at Leverings Ford, and then they're marching into the Great Valley, and they're getting in position to block the Schuylkill River Fords on the South Valley Hills, and that's how you get the Battle of the Clouds on September 16th, which is the same day the British leave here. You might ask why didn't he go defend Philadelphia, but at that point he was much more interested in protecting his supplies. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Bruce is right. <laughs> now this gets to maybe, maybe the heart of Washington's entire strategy for the war, but would you call Brandywine a must-win battle for Washington? Well, we lost and we still won the war, so I guess it wouldn't be a must-win. Um, it wasn't a must-win. It, it was. I think what was important was Washington again, even though in defeat, kept the army together and fought for another day. Yeah, it's not a must-win. Despite what the British thought, capturing Philadelphia really meant nothing, and that's proven out because September 26th, you know, a few weeks after this, they do capture Philadelphia, and they occupy it for nine months. And so what? They leave it the next spring and go back to New York. It meant. You know, nothing. Congress left and were able to continue to operate in a different location, eventually end up in York, Pennsylvania. And so it wasn't a must win. If, if losing Philadelphia didn't really matter, it wasn't a must win. Uh, what did Howe do in Philadelphia? Had that, a good that time. He, that, yeah, <laughs> that he hadn't seen or hadn't expected. I mean, he captured the city. That should be a victory roundly, but it doesn't go that way. No, again, you know, the city was a little bit split. He certainly had a lot of support, a lot of people, you know, very welcoming to him. Uh, and, you know, he was about ready to go back to England, which he did within a year. And I think he just was going to take it easy right out the winter and uh, wasn't, certainly wasn't interested in, you know, attacking Washington at Valley Forge. Yeah, I think, I think he's disappointed. He had been given false hope by s some prominent Pennsylvanians before they left New York, especially Joseph Galloway, who was the former speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, um, that all these Pennsylvanian loyalists would rise up to support the army, fight with the army, do whatever the army needed. All they had to do was march into Pennsylvania. Well, that never played out. Um, and that's a misconception the British had throughout the war. They, you know, when they shift the, the, army, the, the war to the south in, in 1779, 1780, there was this hope that there'd be this massive loyalist uprising in the south too, and it never happened. And so they continued to operate throughout the war under this misnomer that there was all these loyal uh, um, citizens just waiting for the army to show up. And so I think he was kind of disgusted when that doesn't happen. And it's one of the reasons he resigns and he returns in the spring to London. He's not in the war after this. Uh, if you go a little bit north uh, and you see what happens at Saratoga, that's a big victory. Washington doesn't have many to speak of. Is there ever any sense or rumblings that maybe Washington is the wrong guy to be leading this army? Well, uh, of course he had dissension within the, the American officers and, and you know, several times they tried to overthrow him. Mm -hmm. uh, I really don't, I think Washington was the right guy. Mm -hmm. There might have been a couple others, maybe a little bit better with the military background, mm -hmm. but I don't know if anyone that I've ever read about that I really thought that would have been ahead of the army and kept it together for the yeah, whole duration. Well, one of the important things about that I argue at the end of you know, my work on, is that Saratoga, you could argue that that victory happens for the Americans because Howe's army isn't marching north. And why isn't Howe's army marching north? It's down here on this misguided attempt to get Philadelphia, which they do. But why is that important? Is that it tied up almost half the available British force in North America on a misguided journey and it ultimately, I feel, ultimately led to the capture of a British army at Saratoga. And so Saratoga leads to the French alliance. French alliance leads to victory. Actually, the way I put it, and, and but I say the same thing, yeah. is that you know the British did everything right here at Brandywine, except they shouldn't have been here at Brandywine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. That's, you know, <laughs> that's exactly what I agree with Michael. Yeah. Uh, when you look at uh, Brandywine in context of the, of the war, what should we say the legacy is? What should be the takeaway? 
you know, I think two things, I've kind of mentioned it before, was that Washington survived, he kept it together. There, there was some spirit coming out, at least late in the day, they, they stood and fought the British, but I think the real lasting legacy is, it has to be Lafayette. Here you had this 18, 19 year old boy general here, France didn't want him here, he shed blood, and from there on, it led to the France's recognition. Yeah, and in some ways it's a, it's a turning point because you remember we talked about that these were all new, a lot of the guys were new to the Army. They're, they're in this transition period, they hadn't gone through the training at Valley Forge yet, and the fact that despite the loss here and despite the loss at uh, other battles of the campaign like Germantown, the Army did not fight that, the actual troops did not fight that bad. They just didn't get put in the right positions at the right times. And so I think it was a bright spot for the future of the Army and what they're going to do later at places like Monmouth and in the Southern campaigns after they've had the formal training at Valley Forge. If someone were to visit or be interested in Brandywine as a battle, what are some of the sites they could visit and see here in Chester County? Well, I, I think, I, of course, the state has a state park just down the road, but I'm always more intrigued and when I'm asked to to kind of guide around, you know, I'll start out by Longwood Gardens and the Kennett Meeting House and show where the day started and then head down to Birmingham Meeting House. One of the deficiencies here is that you have royal roads and it's, it's sometimes hard to stop, but you can stop and look at Osborne Hill from the Meeting House and then go back to Sandy Hollow. Um, so it, there's really interesting places and I think people do well that to come and visit those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, they sell driving tour maps up at, you know, the state park up on Route 1, um, but you kind of hit the highlight places. Yeah. The Chad House, that Chad's for is named yes. for, where Washington came under artillery fire in the yard of that house. I mean, they're not all under the same entity, but there are places out there that associate it with the battle. You can visit. There's some walking trails up on Birmingham Hill and Sandy Hollow. Um, so there are spots. And if you're really good shape, I know people have done the whole flanking march. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> so, so you can actually do that. And you could kayak the Brandywine, which I recommend. In some ways, it's the only way to see where some of these fords were, because some of them there aren't even roads leading to them anymore, um, which is a lovely day on the river, especially uh, on a hot day. <laughs> could you talk about some of your research? Um, sure. I, I always thought when I started the book, and, and my book started when I won an auction of old newspapers and it was a first-hand account of somebody who wrote with Pulaski in Washington here and then I discovered there was not a book on the Battle of the Brandywine which I thought was a big oversight and I knew Brandywine did not get the recognition it really deserved at times and I think I finally figured out I spent a couple weeks in London I went to the Public Records Office and the British Army Museum and when I went to the public records office, like their national archives. I said, I'm here to do some research on the American Revolution. And they said, yes, yes, we've heard of that. And pretty much that tone. And then I said specifically Brandywine, and I got kind of, you know, blank looks that even though this was a big British victory that they did not uh, really know that much. And, and frankly, uh, the American Revolution is almost a blimp over there in their history anyway. And the more as I, I did the research, I think the reason was the British big victories here, but they lost the war, so they don't talk about it. And this was a, uh, not George Washington's favorite battle. He was outflanked at Long Island and, and other places. And frankly, he, j he just did not talk much about Brandywine afterwards. So, you know, the victors of the battle not talking about it, and you know, the victors of the war not talking about it. And I, you know, I, I think that's why Brandywine sometimes is underreported and had been. Yeah, I, I would agree. And then the, um, the other thing I found, and I, just a theory, it seems like the battles that, have, that were written a lot about, not just right after the war, but through the 1800s, all ultimately became national parks. Saratoga, uh, Yorktown, Cowpens, Kings Mountain, they're all National Park Service sites. But all these battlefields that a lot of people didn't talk a lot about in the 1800s, didn't get saved in the same way that the big national parks did. So Brandywine, Monmouth, Trenton, Princeton got very little land saved. And so when you don't have a lot of land associated with the people who go visit, there ain't going to be a lot of people writing about it. Um, but like Bruce, you know, a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in 
dusty old libraries and archives, looking at microfilm. Um, but one thing, and I can't take the credit for finding it, um, actually somebody else did, but one of the things that was discovered since your book came out mm -hmm. was a, a British engineer's officer's map, uh, Archibald Robertson. It's part of the Queen's personal map collection in Windsor Castle. And it's, it's literally mixed in with all, her, all the colonial era maps. So there's like all these maps of like New Jersey's boundaries and Pennsylvania's boundaries. And mixed in with this is this guy's uh, watercolor map of the Battle of Brandywine. Now, Robertson was uh, an engineer officer and house staff here. And we mentioned that the British stayed here for five days after the battle. Sometime during that five day period, Robertson created this, this beautiful map. And it's not just beautiful as a piece of artwork, but it's incredibly detailed and it's 500 feet to the inch. And you can lay over a modern road map on it and the roads match. I mean, that's how accurate it is. But it shows every fence line, where all the orchards were, where all the houses and barns and outbuildings were, where, where it was wooded, what wasn't wooded. And so when I was, I literally had this thing posted on, pasted on my wall after I paid for a very expensive copy of it for Windsor Castle. Um, um, as I was writing, it was there so I could constantly refer to it. If there was some nuance of terrain, why didn't they see that? Why could look, he's got all the terrain features. And so it was exceptionally invaluable uh, for writing my book. And the maps that I created for the book were created based off of that map. So, Michael made a good point about the parks and, and everything that the um, Brandywine State Park, I don't think, was even established to the mid I think, 40. I think it's yeah, 1940. Not, yeah, I was thinking 40 or 50 was in that might, area. It's in that area. It yeah. was in that area. And, um, you know, before that, a guy by the name Chris Sanderson, a local character who saved everything and used to live on the battlefield himself. And there's a Chris Sanderson museum there. But that he was really the one that protected talking it, and yeah. talked about it to that point. So even the state of Pennsylvania didn't get into it to the mid 20th century. Yeah. And there was this weird theory from about early 1900s on that, you know, we're not, you know, it's all farms. We don't need to protect it all. And so there was this theory that if you, you create almost like a gateway property that you could interpret the battle and have maps and, and displays, um, but then you go out and drive it on your own because it's all farmland anyway. And, and Brandywine is unfortunately an example of that where the state thought, well, if we get the 50 acres on a major road, US Route 1, build a visitor center, people come learn about the battle, watch a movie, and then we'll give them a map and they can go drive and look at the ground. But we don't need to save it because it's all farmland anyway. Well, they weren't thinking 30, 40 years in advance when you know, you're know, you a suburb of Philadelphia and everybody wants to live out here and build big giant houses and on the battlefield. And so, um, but Brandywine's not the only place that that happened to. There's a lot of places that happened to. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.